Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and today is really special as today's podcast comes just after the release of a new SANS white paper sponsored by Infoblox entitled A DNS Architecture as a SecOps Force Multiplier. And we have the author with us today, John Pescastori, the Director of Emerging Security Trends at SANS. Thank you for joining us, John. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. And as an added bonus, we have Cricket Lou, the Infoblox Chief DNS Architect with us. Welcome back, Cricket. Thanks, Bob. Nice to be here. Um, now, I want to start out, uh, John, by thanking you because you kept the report short. There's lots of these white papers that go into the dozens of pages. I got one the other day that somebody wanted me to review for 48 pages. So uh, thank you for keeping it short. But I was also impressed with how comprehensive it was. I mean, there's topics that I saw you cover them in like a third of a page and you moved on. It's like, wow, he, he capsulated a lot. So um, that that was the first thing. It was, it was a real nice, smooth read. But I also like that you started out um, for a lot of those people who are still really trying to keep all this DNS security stuff straight in their head because there's two sides to DNS security. The term itself is often misunderstood. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to think through that, you know, the, when you think about architecture, if you've ever built a house versus just bought a house, sort of the first thing you have to do is think through your requirements for the house. How many people, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, and that's going to drive the size of the utilities that have to come into your house. And those, those utilities are key, and they, they often drive the architecture of the house, where the furnace is going to go, where the water is going to go, where the electricity is going to go. So that's the very first level is, you know, DNS is this critical piece of the infrastructure to keep the business going. And those business requirements are just like planning out your house. And then protecting those services is really key from unintentional damage. You know, if you think about it, we do things building a house to make sure they don't drive drywall screws into the water pipes or the electrical lines behind the wall. That's part of thinking through how you build your house. And same is true with our DNS infrastructure, our identity infrastructure overall. And the bad guys certainly know that, right? So the bad guys are going after that infrastructure either to disrupt it or corrupt it um, to carry out their attacks. And so it's important from both things, build it, think it through as an architecture thinking through how you're going to protect it, but then also how you're going to take advantage of it. The example I often use is so many houses today, they're using um, under the floor heat, you know, something we never thought of before. Another way we can use electricity to heat the house in the most efficient way possible. And similarly, DNS information gives us some really critical, really timely information to uh, fight threats. Yeah, I bought a new house here recently and I was looking at those little tools that say, oh, they say go to your power box and clamp this on all these different wires and then it'll tell you how your different appliances are using your power, which ones are pulling the most and when they're operating and things like that. And uh, I hadn't thought of it until your analogy just now. I was going, wow, that is a great analogy because that's exactly what I wanted to know. I wanted to know what was going on in my house. And I have this resource called the power lines that I just rarely use. Now, Cricket, you know, as a DNS architecture, and I, I know it's not really true, but you're you're kind of like the guy that I remember. You wrote the the bind book, and and you've just been in DNS forever. Um, <laughs> a lot of people yeah. tend to think of DNS as just something I just point my router to, but it can be so much more, particularly in an enterprise, right? Yeah, you know, it, it took a very very long time. Uh, DNS has been around now for just about forty years, believe it or not. <laughs> And I think we spent the first several decades uh, mostly worried about 
the security of DNS infrastructure. So making sure that people couldn't use our DNS servers and DDoS attacks, that people um, who were unauthorized couldn't dynamically update our zones and things like that. And it's only really been since about 2010 that we've begun to realize, wow, you know, a DNS server actually can be a very, very effective security tool. Uh, 2010 in particular, because it's when Paul Vixie wrote uh, Taking Back the DNS, which was his uh, blog entry introducing the idea of the response policy zone. Now, um, John, I want to go back to you now, because while this paper is on DNS, um, as I was reading it, I got the impression that could have real easily have been titled something about threat intelligence, because you talk about threat intelligence and the full breadth of threat intelligence uh, throughout it. So while the title clarifies that this is a DNS security paper, um, you talk about threat intelligence as being much more than IOCs and all the different aspects of it. But let's start with those IOCs, the, the obvious part of where threat intelligence uh, is useful um, for not only identifying malware. I think a lot of people tend to think of, oh, that's, a, that's the signature for malware. But at DNS, we're not seeing the malware. We're seeing other indicators. And there's other kinds of threat intelligence that kind of pulls into that. And in your paper, you highlight three main benefits to um, and their time benefits to having good threat intelligence, um, time to detect, time to respond, and time to restore. Would you talk about that a little bit here for us? Yeah, sure. You know, this term threat intelligence is used for a wide range of information, but to me, I started my career out in the intelligence community. To me, intelligence information has to lead to action. Otherwise, it's just gossip. Here's the building the Chinese hackers lived in. Who cares? What is, how does that help me? So the key to intelligence information is it's really more valuable when you get it before the attack. And it's really, really more valuable when you get it far enough before the damage occurs that you can do something. Um, I was surfing the web or somehow I saw one of these diagrams of the Big Bang, the formation of the universe. And it sort of looks like a sideways champagne glass, you know, real narrow stem. The first hundred milliseconds, most everything happened. And then over billions of years, you know, planets formed and all that kind of stuff. So on the on the webinar we'll do, I, I'm using that graphic and I'm pointing to the very start and saying first DNS call was right at the beginning of the Big Bang because nothing can happen before there's a DNS call. The user can't fall for phishing before there's a DNS call. So it's very valuable information, assuming we also have the right uh, view of that intelligence that we can say this is something dangerous or unusual. Not somebody. Go ahead. And you also call out all the different kinds of devices that use DNS. We tend to think, oh, um, my servers are being attacked, my my end users and their laptops are being attacked. But today we have so many other devices. You called out uh, not just IoT, but industrial control systems and other kinds of things as well. I think anybody's familiar now at home. If you ever have to put in a new home router, you find out you have forty-one different devices with IP addresses in your house. And that's multiply that by a thousand, and that's what enterprises find in a typical large network. The, the things that aren't people that have IP addresses or aren't associated with a user machine are just huge. And many of them aren't going to respond to scanning, but if they want to talk, they have to talk. If they want to do something, they have to talk on the network, and we see their DNS calls. Yeah. And that's where, um, again, when I started working and learning things from Cricket on it, I was surprised that you know dns is is not just a phone book 
there's when it's being used it leaves tracks it leaves uh, information and evidence of activity and there's just so much in there besides just this device connected to that site yeah what one thing you know i mentioned the bad guys know that too um so it's again back to the house analogy these openings in your house where utilities come in on the front of your house and the bad stuff goes out in the back of the house that's also how rats and bats and mice can get into your house right they no, there's those openings, and they can come in through some unusual ways. Bad guys can use DNS to get stuff out of the environment, make it harder for us to see data exfiltration, and use it to get bad stuff in the environment. It's it's, it's a it's a two-edged sword that we really have to protect. Yeah, I think Cricket. The last time we had you on, we were actually talking about DNS tunneling a bit there. Yeah, yeah, which is increasingly being used by the bad guys as a mechanism for exfiltrating data, or just as a mechanism for communicating between. Uh, an infected device and command and control infrastructure out on the internet. You know, I, I started my career out in the firewall industry. And back then we protected everything. And then quickly we had to say, well, if it's HTTP, you really have to let it go through. But yeah. we'll apply a few stateful rules. Same was true with DNS. It's pretty much, yep, we got to let that port go through. So those are openings that are pretty widely known they're going to be there. And unfortunately, they're, they're not protected well enough. Yeah, and DNS packets compared to an HTTP packet can carry so much, so little data in comparison. I was talking to an engineer the other day and I said, okay, do the calculations for me. For an average HTTP packet today and how much data that can hold, how many DNS packets would it take? And, you know, depending, he gave me a couple scenarios and it was hundreds to thousands of packets. So nobody's going to smash and grab your 15 terabyte customer database over DNS, but they are going to be able to use it to like steal the passwords of the three people who have access to that data. So they can then carry out the attack without ever being noticed because it'll look like it's a legitimate person. So DNS, I'm finding that people tend to overlook it for that kind of a purpose because they don't ever hear that somebody stole all this data and it was all over DNS. But what they miss was yeah, but it probably could have, would have never happened if they hadn't gotten the credentials in the first place. And guess what are the what are the, some of the best ways to get that kind of data out of a of an infrastructure? Put it out over DNS. So yeah, yeah. To, to Cricket's point, they're doing that more and more these days. And and the thing is that the the rate at which you can exfiltrate data or that you can communicate with command and control infrastructure doesn't really matter because you got all day, right? I mean. Nobody's watching. <laughs> that channel is is in most organizations almost completely unsurveilled. So, you know, if 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 you're going to take days or weeks or whatever to exfiltrate a, a bunch of data, fine. Nobody's the wiser. Well, yeah. we've also been pointing out that you know ransomware is an example of they may ex exfiltrate the data, they may not. Um, mm -hmm. Living off the land attacks, we've been pointing out for a couple of years now. They don't even need to pull in a huge executable anymore. They're using the operating system capabilities and admin installed software against the operating system, living off mm -hmm. the land attack. So you don't need those giant pipes to do lots of damage. Yep. Now, I want to go on to the, the other aspect, though, of threat intelligence. You know, we started this uh, around IOCs, but then you talk about um, the criteria for threat intelligence. There, there are three things you pulled out. Um, one is it has to be accurate. Now that's kind of obvious, uh, fairly obvious that, you know, if I'm going to get IOCs, uh, I don't want false positives, you know, things like that has to be timely. And of course we're in a world of zero day attacks. So those two are, are pretty straightforward. 
But then you used um, what I thought was a, a very good word for it. The third criteria is it has to be adaptable. Um, you want to drill in on that a little bit more for the audience? Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's things that are so simple and so broad that they tend to be useless. You know, let's block the, the China domain. Well, no, we, we probably need to do business with the China domain. And you start going in the opposite direction to such very specific URLs that you're still letting people go to very dangerous sites as long as they avoid one URL you knew about. So adaptable means adapting as the threat changes and the mechanisms the bad guys use change. Um, it may we, we need threat intelligence that's often more reputation-based than just um, single malware event type-based stuff. You know, the, the things you can see about, gee, we've never, ever talked to this domain before. Or this domain was registered with a credit card 29 minutes ago. These are things that can often raise flags um, that adapt to what we're worrying about. On a financial server, I may be worried very differently than on a public information server. And I can use the same types of information differently if I can be assured that it's accurate and it's fresh. Yeah. One of the things that I like to point out, too, is that, um, you know, one of the things, John, I think you're alluding to is that we have these response policy zones that that uh, Farsight Security originally called newly observed domain feeds. So domain names that we've first witnessed out on the internet within the last, say, eight hours, 24 hours, choose your threshold. And, and one of the things that I like to explain is the opportunity cost of actually blocking access to these brand new domains is almost zero, right? I mean, do any of us here today know a single newly observed domain, something that's first popped up on the internet in the last 24 hours? Probably not, unless we've been messing around with our own DNS servers and their configuration. Yeah, the the, the visibility into that is uh, requires a, a focus and specialty into uh, Cricket's point. You know, that's why there are other organizations that focus on that. We pull that that in. And that was one thing I, I did want to to raise is that, um, you know, the the timeliness factor behind threat intelligence is not just getting it uh, from someplace. And, uh, you know, when we start talking about some of these like specialized, you, you're going to be getting threat intelligence from multiple places um, and bringing it together. But it's also getting it to the right place. I mean, it's not just to one tool, but you have firewalls, you have gateways, you probably have endpoint tools that, you know, for when people are off network, um, unless maybe you're using a cloud gateway that you're routing even your remote users through. But there's a lot of different security tools that we have that all need threat intelligence. And uh, I sometimes like to point out that for almost those, all of those tools, there's some sort of open source free version. It just doesn't have threat intelligence. The, the real factor for effectiveness is do you have threat intelligence to, and to your point in the report, that is accurate, timely, <laughs> and is it adaptable to what this tool needs that threat intelligence to do? Um, so it's the timeliness factor isn't just, you know, hey, have they updated their, their source, but have I, can I also distribute it in my network and get it to the different places? Um, but on the adaptability side, which you, you define as just more than just IOCs, I thought that was a very... That's a pretty short, simple way because there's so many ways to do uh, to use threat intelligence. I've talked to people that they say, um, look, when we see an incident or, you know, they get an alert, they triage it. But now they've got a short list. It's not terribly short, but it's shorter than what they started with. Of Here's things I need to investigate. And that's when they start looking up who is information. 
where maybe they'll find, uh, you know, that this is a new site or something like that. They start trying to understand who are the threat actors behind it. They try to find out um, for this particular attack, how does my response need to uh, to be? Because we're, we're using the MITRE framework. And so that type of attack, which aspects of the MITRE framework apply? There's a lot of information they need to know if they're going to be effective. And I imagine that's that's everything that you know that that's the uh well that's a sampling of everything else that threat intelligence can can mean to somebody right yeah i mean i think when you you, you know i worked at gardner for 14 years and i was talking to fortune 1000 companies all the time and i began to realize you know they all spend within a vertical they spend about the same amount of money on security same percentage of, the, of their it budget within a vertical um, they all have the same access to information. They were all calling us at Gardner. They all sort of, they all had smart people. Yet some didn't get hit by big attacks. Some did. And began to sort of realize what the difference was was they were equipping their teams with the skills and the tools to a better job of prioritizing what they did. It's not how long the list is. It's is the f- most important thing you should do at the top. So if I'm getting flooded with sim alerts. The quantity of sim alerts is not how I need to judge them. It's am I having enough intelligence sources that are allowing me to put the important ones at the top so that the security analysts can work those off while the security unicorn is chasing after the really hard stuff. So that's one of the things that reputation data and, and, and a lot of things we can get from DNS and other sources are really key to just nudge this one attack that looked like it was in the middle of the pack. No, no, no. Look at that first. That has the most potential for the most damage happening the, the, the quickest. And that's what's really key about intelligence is priority, even in national intelligence. It's not knowing bad stuff. We, we, we'd never do anything if we just knew about the bad stuff. It's knowing which ones we should deal with first. Well, and you talked about reputation, and then I think in the paper right after that, you're, you, you start getting into machine learning. Um, of course, this goes with the accuracy. Um, there are so many zero days coming out. Um, and to Cricket's point, you know, it's pretty easy for somebody to roll out a new domain and things like that, unless you're blocking them just because they're new. Um, there's a lot of ways that we get hit with new stuff that at best it looks like something that we've seen in the past. But you spend a lot of time talking about uh, machine learning. Um, and I did like the fact that you clarified that it is, it is a subset of AI. I've been really kind of frustrated. I see products that a year ago they were advertised as machine learning. Today they're saying it's AI. And it's like, what did you do different? Nothing. <laughs> we just brand it different. But machine learning is really actually um, a subset of AI. And uh, I thought you covered it rather well. Yeah, I think we gave it about a page out of those seven. And I normally do a full hour long thing on on the usability of AI and machine learning and security. Because, you know, years ago, the, the word AI didn't work out. We weren't building computers that could think. So they started saying machine learning. Well, they're still machines, but they can learn. And it turned out that's what could happen. And what they could do is learn from skilled humans. Very rarely is it, let's pour data into the top of an algorithm and out at the bottom pops information, right? It's usually that there's a model built by somebody that's incorporating some domain experience. And then the machine could go a lot faster and look at a lot more things and recognize patterns more quickly than a, a poor uh, single CPU, single core human brain. So there's a lot of things that AI is helping, but it's a lot of overhype as well. And so it's a lot of it I call glorified signatures, just like IOCs. Really, that looks to me like an algorithm 
that might make the signatures a little fuzzier, but it's a glorified, you know, regex pattern matching thing is all, all I can see it doing. Well, um, that, fuzzy yeah. thing, that fuzzy thing that you mentioned, though, we used to call that heuristics even before they had AI. That was that was heuristics back around the millennium. I used to have two, the dreaded two H words, heuristics and holistic. Holistic <laughs> meant imaginary and heuristics meant undocumented. <laughs> you know, when, when I, I worked for GT, which used to be a big telephone company, and, and, and we did uh, AI research, they called it AI research, and we found one unit in GT had the best uptime of the telephone services. And it turned out the maintenance guy there had paid for cable TV subscription in their maintenance um, headquarters so they could watch the weather channel. And he would say, yeah, our biggest problem is lightning knocking out trees onto the power lines. And this TV hanging over here, I can see the radar that the lightning's moving this way. So I tell our trucks, go ahead of the lightning. And we said, that's genius. And now you can do things with computers to do APIs that can do similar things to say, go to the lightning detection site. So similarly, taking advantage of skilled humans, we can not only do things faster, but we can often find the problem and throw the solution at it much more quickly too. Yeah, that's near and dear to my heart. We were... Uh... We had a big storm pass through the Bay Area not too long ago, and and uh, it pulled down a, a high tension tower near us, and we lost power for four days in the heart of Silicon Valley. You know, that, that's another sort of DNS-related one is um, over the pandemic when we saw everybody working at home, there was a lot of focus on how fast their home internet connections were. Mm-hmm. And they'd run these speed tests, and, well, we're all getting 80 megabits per second. It's not bad. But they never tested the DNS performance and reliability of, where whatever little rinky dink uh, ISP they were using, Randy, Randy, um, no, I just blanked on his last name, but he's the CISO at uh, Virginia Tech. Randy Marchani is a SANS instructor, and Virginia Tech had to support very rural populations, and it, it was hopeless. They ended up making deals with local companies that allowed students to go drive to the parking lot and get on a decent Wi-Fi system. It wasn't bandwidth; it was all about DNS performance. Wow. Yeah, and. Um... You know, the whole thing here, um, I remember, you know, heuristics being something that uh, when it first came out, it was in response to everybody saying, hey, all your antivirus is all signature based. That was when everybody's just doing desktop stuff. And I think some server antivirus had just come out, but um, they were starting to realize the, the limitations of signatures. And so they came out with heuristics. Um, and heuristics just kind of, like you said, it's kind of fuzzy. And machine learning the next big step, the one challenge with that, because I was using that actually with some, uh, uh, although I was in the workforce at the time, um, I, I'm one of those people that I always love going to school. Uh, I like, love learning new things. And so I was taking a couple of university programs on machine learning and you had to have like 10,000 samples. And from that, that was enough for the machine learning system to learn what it needed to learn. Oh, and you also had to have negative samples so that you could say like, here's a, a thousand uh, or a hundred thousand websites. 10,000 of these are banking websites. These are the ones I want you to look at. And here's 10,000 that are not banking websites. Now I'm going to a website and I want you to tell me, is it a banking website? Yes or no. And just to do that, it took so many samples. So just like there were limits with the early heuristics, machine learning is also limited. It is dependent on how much it has to uh, to derive some sort of 
typical or average assumption or identify trends. But when it comes to zero days, I see a lot of people talking about machine. Oh, I've got machine learning. So it's going to find, you know, and help me with, uh, with those zero days. It's like, well, only if that zero day is a variant of something you've already seen 10,000 times. Yeah, you you missed the step in the evolution between signatures and heuristics was called behavioral detection. Yep. It turned out it was so false positive littered that it was hard to define normal behavior on a typical network. But that is something that, <laughs> excuse me, machine learning is good at is classifying events. Mm-hmm. We can use machine learning tools to say, I don't know what these things are, but these are similar. And mm-hmm. then a human being can look and say, oh, those are all similar okay things. Those are sysadmins. These mm-hmm. other similar things, those are similar bad things. And then from the human input or the human reinforcement into the algorithms or models, if you want to call them that, we can then start saying, okay, now run that model, that version of the model. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things where the uh, technology doesn't eliminate as many jobs as we think it's going to eliminate, but it sure does make the same number of people able to work faster. Well, and these newer technologies don't replace the old ones. A lot of people think, well, with AI, then I don't need any, uh, you know, signatures. I don't need heuristics. I don't need machine learning. It's like, no, each one of those is a great technology to solve a certain aspect of the problem. Um, like, you know, people keep, uh, I, I get in conversation, they'll say, I wonder when we're going to finally do away with signatures. Like, you know, signatures are a super fast way to take a sample, run it past 10,000 signatures and eliminate possibilities real quick. Um, you know, your, your AV products will still check a, a new sample that they see against the 10, 20, 50,000 known things that, that are out there. Um, and once they've I've identified that, hey, it's not of the big things, it's got to be something special, they then run it through a few more things that says, okay, so it's probably in this bucket. Let's go to that bucket and run special tools there or machine language here, or maybe even put it into our nascent AI tool that we're working on. It's all of this technology is, is needed. It all has value in different ways. I've, I've been talking to people about the value of running machine learning algorithms across their passive DNS data, basically their DNS telemetry collected across their organization. But I think that there's a fairly high uh, barrier to entry because I only know of one of our customers actually doing that. They're an insurance company and they're very, they're very advanced. But the nice thing is that a lot of the ML algorithms are written for you. I have a good friend, Manas Antonakakis, who's a professor at Georgia Tech. And he has a whole lab. And what they do is they come up with these brilliant algorithms that ferret out you know, previously unknown domain generation algorithms by running hidden Markov models and other things that I do not understand. Um, so you can actually you can actually take advantage of the work that that an organization like that's done. But you uh, probably ought to have some data scientists on staff in order to actually put that into production. Yeah, that goes back to the point I was, I was making earlier that you need threat intelligence from a lot of different sources. And that's that's not just official places. Um, there's open source, there's government, there's vendors that sell feeds like um, Cricket, you mentioned um, Farsight and their newly observed do- domain feeds that a lot of people use. Um, there's all of that. But there's other things. It's not just those kinds of feeds. You know, use your networks, connect with your networks and find out what they're finding is useful. Sometimes 
around feeds, they'll let you know that, hey, this particular source of feeds, all of a sudden I'm starting to get a lot of false positives around it. You know, the quality of feeds go up and down. You want to stay networked for that. Um, but there is more than the feeds. There's the techniques and procedures that people are using. Um, you know, best practices change all the time. Uh, I get a kick out of people that come and they ask us, so, you know, what are your best practices? And number one, to a point, John, you mentioned earlier, it varies by vertical, you know, what works for one. And, and even in a single vertical, I've seen two companies, exact same industry. They were two of the three competitors in that industry. And yet their network and security practices were completely different because they were in different regions of the world. Well, the, um, the other thing you have to keep in mind is, you know, the bad guys have full visibility into all these tools we're using. And they can buy the same tools and reverse engineer them and start to say, I see, here's what I have to do. I've got to launch these DDoS attacks over here to get the model flooded with that. And then I can do this over here. So a lot of times analysts, skilled analysts on the inside pivoting through tables seems, seems inefficient. But the bad guys can't reverse engineer that or the bear or the local, the analysts using sophisticated tools, their own machine learning algorithm based tools that they've tweaked. That's a very cool thing. In fact, you know, we did a little survey. Everybody's worried about attrition because it's so hard to hire security people. If you let them build their own tools and play with their own tools instead of sitting at a screen staring at similars all day, they feel more creative. Attrition goes down. They're not going to jump for a little more money. They're having fun. They're doing technical stuff. And so there's a lot of skill, a lot of people's skill that can get captured in those algorithms. And it's all this kind of virtual cycle. If you get, if you have the right data, a lot of good stuff can happen. Yeah. Security value and, and uh, just so many benefits to, uh, to getting more active rather than reactive, but we're down to the last few minutes here. Uh, I want to give you both uh, a moment to kind of present a uh, kind of a summary of what would you think are based on what we've been talking today uh, could you give our audience some of your top of mind uh, security best practices um, based on what we've talked about today cricket why don't we start with you sure yeah i i mean i, I really think and i've been preaching this for some time now that <laughs> using response policy zones is is such a, a fantastic deal right i mean plumbing response policy zones into your local recursive DNS infrastructure is so important. These are servers that you already have, right? I mean, this is not some new WYSI device that you've got to put on all of your subnets. Um, as, as we were saying earlier, every single client on your TCP IP network uses DNS. So it applies to all kinds of devices that you might not otherwise be able to protect. It provides you with timely insights into infections and uh, malicious activity. So please, please, please take a look at it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a that's a great one. The one I'll point to is, you know, sort of back to the architecture thing is you're back to the house. If you have an architect design a really elegant house and some poor schlub then has to build it and say, wait a minute, there's no way to run ductwork from there to there. How are we going to cool and heat that, that, that part of the structure? You have problems. So the same thing, a lot of enterprises, the, how DNS is done and run and operated is often a different group than the security group, often different than the network group. So if you're in the security group, go, go figure that out early on and make friends and however DNS decisions are being made and get security plugged in and, and get the value of protecting having a resilient DNS architecture and the availability of the information. And yeah, I agree 100% on response policy zones. I thought we'd be seeing way more use of them by now. That also stood out to me as I was reading your paper in the conclusion. In addition to some technical advice, you gave that, I don't know, I'm going to refer to it as political advice the security team and the networking team, you've got to start working together and talking more. 
uh, to make all this work. But unfortunately, we're already over time um, and there's a lot more we could do. Uh, I thought we'd cover more of the paper in 30 minutes. I mean, I mentioned earlier, it's only six pages, but um, we've barely covered half of it. So, um, John, I cannot thank you and Sans enough for uh, being here with us today. All right. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And Cricket, it's always great to have you on the show. Likewise. Thanks, Bob. And I'd like to thank all of our viewers and listeners for your time as well. Please join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.